0: Hi, this is David Mack, writer and creator of Kabuki and writer and artist of Daredevil, uh, both from Marvel Comics, uh, davidmack.com, and you're listening to Episode 9.
1: Seventh Son, Book 2, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins, read by the author. For more information about this novel, please visit www.jchudgens.net
0: Hey, this is Twig.
2: And I'm Tasha.
0: we're the hosts of AudioPandemicShow.com. Like we do in our show, we thought it'd be cool to start off here with a little toast.
2: So grab your favorite beverage and join us for a drink.
0: Alright, so I got a cool quote here to toast to. It's from Fran Lebowitz, who says, The best fame is a writer's fame. It's enough to get a table at a good restaurant, but not enough to get you interrupted while you eat. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers.
2: Alright, shall we move on to what we're actually supposed to be doing here?
0: (laughs) I think we probably should. Alright, let's get right into it. The story so far.
2: In the last chapter the fallout from John Alpha's takeover of the Seven Sun Facility and the launch of the hijacked Russian nukes, continued.
0: Kilroy 2.0, Father Thomas, and Dr. Mike were locked inside the darkened common room. Although he had saved one PC from Alpha's hack, nearly all of Kilroy's life work, his countless notes, conspiracy theories, and websites were destroyed in the attack.
2: Kilroy later explained that he had not only shielded his last PC from the hack, but had also severed the common room from the op surveillance system. Safe from Alpha's scrutiny, the clones went online and discovered the target of the Russian missiles, Saudi Arabia.
0: Meanwhile, John, Jack, General Hill, and Dr. Kleiman pried open the doors of the express elevator and found themselves in the Proto-Womb level, where the very first Seventh Sun cloning experiments took place. This level had apparently not been used for 20 years.
2: As the chapter came to a close, Kleinman and Jack argued about the applications of human cloning technology, but Hill cut them short. He had found the telltale signs of squatters.
0: It was clear that someone had been down here recently.
1: Chapter 13 The Newswire reports were conflicting, confused. Few of the stories had official sources of information. But there was no denying the mushroom clouds that had erupted across the surface of Saudi Arabia. It had happened, really happened. A surreal feeling swept over Mike's mind again, a tittering voice that kept saying, It's real. No, it can't be. It's real. Can't be. Can't be. Real. Can't be. This was the same desperate feeling he had experienced when he watched the World Trade Center collapse on television years ago, and when he had stared into the eyes of his fellow clones days ago. No. Let's cover our ears and scream the star-spangled banner, he thought. Let's regress. A terrible joke, that's all this is. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Go about your business. Go about your business. Mike gulped, heard his throat click. A digital photograph glimmered on Kilroy's computer monitor, the flat pane of a desert horizon, and just off-center, two mushroom-shaped clouds of smoke loomed into the top, then beyond of the frame. Somewhere on the AM dial, Father Thomas was clutching his rosary, weeping, asking the same question over and over. Why? Why? Somewhere closer, Kilroy was giving his answer. Dr. Mike escaped his own gibbering denial and tuned in. Kilroy 2.0 was everywhere. "'Doesn't make sense,' the hacker was saying. "'The Saudi government was slowly democratizing. They're an ally to both the East and West.' The only time they ever play the 800-pound gorilla is when it comes to... Kilroy's voice trailed off again. He closed his eyes and nodded. Mike recognized that expression. Kilroy had done the same thing nearly a half hour ago when he realized the first nuclear missile was detonated to blind the American spy satellites. It was Kilroy's look of knowing. The oil, Kilroy said. The oil. Thomas looked up from the floor the tears still gleaming on his face. What was that? (laughs) Launching Russian nukes is more than enough to get the world's attention, Gilroy said. And it's enough to inspire worldwide chaos. But what would truly grind this world to a halt? What does everybody need but only the precious few have to sell? What would bring the global economy to its knees? (laughs) Kill the flow of oil. It isn't the stuff in Fort Knox that makes the world go round. It's the black gold, and John Alpha has just annihilated the world's largest supply. And the people living there, Thomas said. What was he thinking? Probably that you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, Mike said. The sick fuck. Kilroy pointed to his monitor. He had accessed a website with up to the minute trading activity from the World Stock Exchanges. Nearly all were closed now due to the emergency but the trading during those minutes before the closing had told the same story. The jagged, up-down graph of activity had plummeted south like a roller coaster. Sell, sell, sell. Alpha attacked with fire. The economic world responded with ice. A global depression was unfolding before them. Saudi Arabia is the number one oil-producing nation, Kilroy said, typing on his keyboard. I bet Alpha targeted oil fields and refineries. They're owned by the state. What's the name of their company? Anybody? Thomas and Mike said they didn't know. Kilroy did an internet search and clicked the link that said www.saudiaramco.com. An error message flashed across the screen. The website was currently unavailable. He would probably stay that way for a long, long time. He nuked the oil fields. He really did it. Look, Thomas said, pointing to the Newswire webpage. A new headline had appeared on the screen. Russian Leadership Authorized Attack Kilroy piloted his mouse to the link and clicked it. More terse, hyperbolic prose, but this story had a quote. A quote from a Russian government official named Boris Savine. The defense minister had contacted the press, the story said. This attack was sanctioned by my department and by the Kremlin, Savine had said. The Saudis have harbored terrorists and dominated the world's economic fate for long enough. Today, we have put a stop to that tyranny and have created a path for other nations, including Russia, with its vast supplies of oil and natural gas, to provide a brighter future. Today, Russia has done the world a great service. What has transpired is not genocide. It is progress. What in the hell is that all about? Thomas asked. Is he nuts? He's been sidejacked, Kilroy replied. Russia would never have attacked the Saudis, not even during the Cold War. Which means we're looking at the smoking gun, Mike said. Alpha somehow sidejacked an official to claim responsibility, to ensure the world doesn't think the attack was an accident. He gave Russia a motive and made sure its government looks like a bus full of assholes. That country is so finished. Two birds, one stone, Kilroy 2.0 whispered. Saudi Arabia and Russia, currently the two top oil-producing nations on the planet. Which country is number three? Thomas asked. Kilroy's face twisted into a cynical smile. Which country do you think? Dr. Mike began to hum the Star-Spangled Banner. General Hill eyed the crumpled remains of the snack wrappers and soda cans. One of the chip bag wrappers screamed propaganda for a 2003 family movie. The labels on the soda cans featured coupons to Six Flags America, which had expired in 2003. This was, of course, the year John Alpha had escaped from the Seventh Son compound. 2003 was also the year a corpse-matching Alpha's genetic makeup had been fished out of Lake Huron. The solution to one mystery became very clear, very quickly. "'He did it here,' Hill muttered. "'We thought he'd built a womb off-site, but he did it here, right under our noses, goddammit!' "'Did what here?' Jack asked. "'Until three weeks ago we thought John Alpha was dead, remember?' Hill said, picking up one of the soda cans. He made a fist, crumpling the aluminum. "'When he kidnapped Dania Sheridan, we thought he was alive, and that he'd faked his death in O three 3 by cloning his body, then killing the clone.' which meant he had access to a womb. But Seventh Sun's system was never, ever used after we made Ubatus, so we assumed Alpha had contacted someone from the outside and had a womb built to make this suicide clone. But that wasn't what happened. He did it here. You're telling me that in the past three weeks, you never considered this place? I did, then discarded it, Hill replied, dropping the crushed can. Alpha was never told about the proto-womb as far as we knew. He never had access— This place has been sealed off for nearly 20 years. In fact, since 1978, the express elevator was programmed to never come down to this level. There's no way he could have known about the proto-womb. General Hill turned away from the gurneys and garbage and began to examine the seven green cloning spheres. Up close, it was clear the orbs were designed to open upward like clamshells. Each featured a large hinge on the back and a silver latch handle on the front. Hill grabbed the handle of the first orb and turned it clockwise. A ratcheting sound of falling tumblers rattled from the orb, and then silence. Hill yanked the latch toward the ceiling and stepped away. The top half of the orb swung upward and backward, the hinge squealing merrily. It was empty inside. "'What are you looking for?' John asked. "'Evidence. Evidence that I'm right,' Hill said, moving on to the second orb. "'Evidence that he used this against us. The son of a bitch was brilliant if he did.' but it would mean that he didn't have a cloning facility on the outside. That would be the only good news to come from this. Wouldn't your security system have warned you if he was down here using this equipment? Jack asked. The ops grid doesn't go down here. Hill replied as he wrapped his finger around the second orb's latch. It was decided by my predecessor that sealing it off would be good enough. Out of sight. Out of mind. Out of fucking touch. He yanked open the orb. It, too, was empty, as was the third. The three civilians watched as Hill came to the fourth orb. He twisted the handle. The room was suddenly filled with a noxious smell, a cross between disinfectant and rotting leaves. Kleiman covered his mouth and began to gag. Hill grimaced, pointing inside. "'There's all the proof I need,' he said. The bottom of the orb was filled with a shallow puddle of congealed yellow goo." That's what's left of the pseudo-embryonic fluid and growth accelerant. Alpha was here years ago, growing a copy of himself. Hill glanced over to the pile of rubbish in the corner. He grew a mindless clone and fed it like a pet. He must have snuck it out with him when he escaped. <laughs> oh, the fluid's been biodegrading all this time, Clyman said. The airtight seal kept it from evaporating completely. He sagged against one of the computer panels, his face pale. John reckoned the old man was about to swoon or vomit. Hill slammed the orb closed and relocked the latch. The room still reeked. "'So now we know,' he said. "'The man planned ahead, no doubt,' John observed. Jack snapped his fingers. "'But what if a part of his plan from the very beginning was to kill himself again? A double suicide? I'm talking about the John Alpha who died in West Hollywood last night. What if dying there was always a part of the plan?' Do you see what I'm getting at? If dying twice was incorporated into his scheme all along— Then he could have cloned more than one of himself here, Hill said, nodding. The John Alpha who died last night could have been a clone too. The Bonafide could still be alive, after all. Let's check. Hill twisted the latch on the fifth orb and opened it. Another blast of the rotting smell filled the room. This cloning sphere had also been used. The pus-colored goo glimmered in the spotlight shining from the ceiling. Shit! He closed the orb. Jack, you're right. Two mindless clones. Now John stepped toward General Hill, shaking his head. One mindless clone I can believe. But two? I don't know, man. I can't imagine trying to lug two brain-dead versions of yourself out of a place like this, especially if you didn't want to get caught. That'd be too much of a liability, like babysitting two groaning Frankensteins. Well, what are you supposing then, son? Clyman said. A shiny explosion of perspiration coated his forehead now. Well, Thomas told us that the John Alpha at the club was very talkative, knew specific things about Seventh Son, and about Thomas and Michael, John replied. If that Alpha was actually a clone, then he must have received a download of memories, the memory totality. Here's what I'm thinking. Before they escaped, the original Alpha must have used the memory recording system on the womb level. He must have recorded an adult version of his memories and stored them in the memory hypercomputer. There was room for more memory totalities, Jack said. John nodded. Exactly. So Alpha must have smuggled his new clones up there and downloaded the memories into their blank minds. Now blessed with brains, the three of them escaped together. Kleiman flashed Hill a worried glance. The General shook his head. That's not possible. We would have known about it. No one goes in or out of the womb without a retina scan. The only way to access a memory totality is through the master terminal in the memory upload-download chamber. That terminal registers every use, every update, every keystroke. The security system would have lit up like a Christmas tree if someone had tapped so much as a letter on that keyboard. No one's touched that terminal in years. So what if he did it here? Jack asked. Here, in this room. What if he recorded his memory totality and downloaded it into the clones from here? No, no, that's also impossible, Dr. Kleinman said. Some color had returned to his haggard face. The Proto-Womb system was never connected to the memory hypercomputer. In fact, all memory experiments were conducted nearly a decade after we closed shop down here. John shook his head again. But what Jack says makes sense. If upstairs was surveillance central, then this would be the perfect place to circumvent the process. A one-stop shop. If he could splice a connection from the hypercomputer and route it down here, he could upload and download with impunity. The master terminal would never be touched. No activity would ever be logged. It's like Kilroy and his backdoor hacking. Okay, so where's this connection to the hypercomputer? Hill asked, crossing his arms. I don't see any cables hanging from the ceiling, no jackhammer tunnels. The general waved a hand toward the two orbs he had just opened. That is evidence, the slop in those spheres. Where's yours? Jack wandered over to the pile of garbage and eyed the gurneys. Two beds, two alpha clones, he murmured. He pushed the upright gurney away from its cockeyed position in the corner, wincing as its large wheels creaked in protest. He then squatted down and tugged the overturned gurney away from the wall. Holy smokes, he said. The fallen gurney had been placed over a large open ventilation duct. Resting inside the three-foot square hole was the coiled end of a thick electrical cable. A smashed, jerry-rigged personal computer lay next to it. The cable snaked down the tunnel, into the darkness. Jack picked up the cable and eyed its endpoint. Six smaller wires snaked out from the black rubber insulation. At the end of each wire was an electrode. In addition, three thicker wires ran from the master cable to the bent and broken PC. There's your back door, John said. He snuck a connection through the ventilation shafts. My God, how many copies did he make? Kleiman asked, turning to General Hill. This is unbelievable! Hill cried. He stalked to the next orb and grabbed its latch. God damn it! This facility was secure, and that freak show manages to sabotage my system, steal storage space from the memory array, grows clones under my nose, escape, and now— He spun the orb's latch and the top half inexplicably sprung open with such force that it yanked Hill's arm upward with it. Hill screamed in pain, and suddenly a tidal wave of thick black liquid gushed outward, spilling over Hill onto the floor. The others watched in horror as Hill slipped on the oily cement, the viscous, inky liquid still surging from the half-sphere. The general was gasping, his eyes wide in shock. And then the smell hit them, an unbearable assault of spoiled meat, bog water, and excrement. Climan spewed vomit across a computer console. Jack leaped backward, his legs banged against the overturned gurney. He fell on his ass, his back bouncing against the wall. John covered his nose, gagging. Something pale bobbed on the surface of the black slime rushing from the open orb, and then, carried by the current, flopped onto the floor beside Hill's feet. John stared at it, unblinking, unbelieving. It was a human hand, the rotten, sagging remains of a human hand. Hill was scrambling away from the open orb now, grunting, pushing himself backward in a manic crab walk. Clyman staggered out of the room, retching. Jack managed to pull himself up and was now dashing for the hallway as well. John kept staring, petrified. The withered hand lay in the black ooze like a beached fish. A yellow bone poked through the tip of its wrinkled pinky finger. peek I see you. Something else was rising to the lightless surface in the orb now. John still couldn't blink, didn't move. The others were screaming for him to get out of the room. He stared down into the darkness of the container, knowing what it was before it emerged, knowing what he'd see before it slowly bobbed and broke the surface. It was a face. Tattered from decomposition, lips long gone, brown teeth gritting at the spotlight above. Wisps of hair danced around it in the liquid, a soulless brown halo. It was John's face. He ran from the room, screaming. You've been listening to Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Thanks for listening. Please visit www.jchutchins.net. For more information about this novel and about the author. Themed music generously provided by Cell Dweller. Please visit the band's website at celldweller.com and at myspace.com slash celldweller. Graphic elements for website art and album art for this podcast generously created by Magic Torch. Please visit the company's website at magictorch.com. This recording and its contents are copyright 2006 J.C.
2: Hutchins.